On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Pastor Mark here, Meaningless Life series continues today, number 17. There's only 18, so we're, we're coming near the end, kids. Today we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7 through chapter 12, verse 8. Uh, message title is uh, Threading Your Needle. And uh, I'll start with the story. There's a place that my family and I have really enjoyed getting away over the years when we used to live up in Washington. And uh, over on the west side of the state, which is where most people are familiar, it's marine layer and heavy clouds and lots of rain and dark days and you're far north and the winters are long and that's what they're in right now. There's been <clears throat> lots of winds and rain and people without power and and on the eastern half of the state, it's actually quite different. I actually just got off the phone before I jumped on with you to talk to a friend of mine, some friends of mine who live over there. And what happens is the uh, the marine layer and the clouds come down from Canada and they dump all the water in the Seattle area and they dump the rain up in the mountains and higher elevations. It actually turns into snow and then it dissipates and the clouds are broken up by the time it gets to eastern Washington. So eastern Washington is really very different. It's a, it's a desert with four distinct seasons is really what it is. And, and the springtime there is amazing. It's like everything has come to life. The, the birds are chirping and flying and the animals are running and the, the rivers are running and the fish are spawning and, and people are out and it's like they've all come out of hibernation and everyone and everything has come out of hibernation. And, and springtime is this time of just life. There's breaks of sun, the days are longer, there's more life, there's more energy, and the nights are still cool, but uh, it then turns into the summertime, and the summers are really dry and very hot. And uh, during that time, there's a lot of harvesting. It's, it's a lot of fruit, uh, literally, over in uh, what is uh, one of the primary apple-producing regions in the entire world. And so, summer as well, long days because you're far north and it's sunny until late at night and uh, there's just a lot of activity and life and the, the, the trees are in full bloom and the, the fruit is getting ready for harvest and that's the summertime. And so there's a lot of life and a lot of energy and a lot of growth and a lot of expectation and a lot of hope around the spring and the summer. And then the, the winter um, is preceded by the fall. And the fall is that transition point. Some days are warm, some days are cold. Some days um, it's light out for a long time, some days the clouds roll in. It's that transition time from fall to winter. Uh, the fruit is finally harvested. Anything that's left dies on the vine. All of the buds are gone. The greenery on the trees disappears and everything goes dormant and prepares for its death cycle of winter. And then winter comes and winter is cold. I just got off the phone with my friend and he said there's a couple inches of snow on the ground and a couple feet of snow up at the, uh, the ski resort. And, and what happens when winter comes is, boy, the animals disappear, right? The birds fly away and everything goes dormant and it becomes eerily quiet. There's not as much 
life and activity. And invariably, um, nothing is green and the trees are barren and the ground is just frozen solid and nothing can grow. And the point is um, that life is like that. And we got introduced to the concept of life being seasonal in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where if you reflect back with me, it says that there's a time and a season for everything. And here this concept of seasons makes an appearance again, and kind of think of your life as four seasons. Uh, you're born, it's springtime. You live your younger years, it's vibrant summertime. As you get older, it starts to feel like fall. And when you're elderly, it's winter. And then eventually, as happens in winter, you die and go dormant until the Lord Jesus resurrects you from the dead and gives you an eternal spring. And, and the, the text that we're in in Ecclesiastes today, it's one of my favorites. Um, I love this section so much, and I've read it so many times that, honestly, this week I didn't have to do any preparation. I'm just going to share from my heart with you something that I've been studying for 20 plus years, when God saved me at the age of 19 in college, I started reading the Bible and studying the Bible with, with diligence. And now that I'm 45, it's been 26 years in God's Word. And I'm so grateful for God's Word and for all the time that He's given me to study. But one of my favorite books is Ecclesiastes. And when I was a new Christian, it was perhaps my favorite book. And my favorite section is this section. It's a section that I have shared many times with young people over the years. And by young people, well, the Bible generally means somebody who's 40 or younger. And what it is, it's that, it's that fatherly moment in the book where Solomon is at this point, wisest, richest, most powerful man in the world. And he's also quite elderly and old. I believe he's looking back on his life and he is sort of pulling out his journal, as it were, and sitting down his grandkids and saying, all right, time for uh, Grandpa to tell you some things. You kids are in your spring or you're in your summer, and I've already been through my spring, my summer, my fall, and now I'm well into my winter. And, uh, and in each season, you've really got to thread the needle. You've got to know what spring is for and what summer is for and what winter is for and and what fall is for. And if you don't thread the needle, you waste that season. And once that season is wasted, you can't get it back. Your life has only got four seasons. And so Solomon is an older man. He's in his winter and he's sitting down with younger men and women who are in their spring and in their summer. And he's sort of looking them in the eye and giving them the old talk. Kids, let me tell you some things I did right. Let me tell you some things I did wrong. Let me tell you some things that I would do over again. Let me tell you some regrets I have as well as some victories I've enjoyed. Let me be brutally honest with you and share with you the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the wins and the losses of my life. And again, this just isn't any old man. This is the wisest, richest, most powerful man in the history of the world, second only to Jesus Christ. And he pulls the entire book together, looking back at his life. And it's incredibly important to have the humility to listen to him. So he starts off talking about being young. And I don't know if you're young or old. It's interesting. I, as I studied this for 20-some years now, I'm old. 
I started studying this when I was 19. Now I'm 45. Again, most of the time when the Bible talks about young people, it's talking about people 40 and under. So I guess technically now I'm an old person talking to young people. And he's talking about the spring and the summer of life for those who are young. So if you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, this is you. Light is sweet, how pleasant to see a new day dawning. When people live to be very old, let them enjoy uh, in every day of life, but let them also remember there will be many dark days. Everything still to come is meaningless. Young people, talks right to the young, it's wonderful to be young, and it is. Enjoy every minute of it, he says. Do everything you want to do, take it all in, but remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. So, refuse to worry. There's your mental and emotional health. And keep your body healthy. There's your physical health. But remember that youth with a whole life before you is meaningless. Here's what he's saying. Being young has some serious advantages. You've got your whole life ahead of you. You're healthy. You're vibrant. You're abounding in energy. And there's a world of possibilities before you. That's generally how it works. But what he's saying is if you're young, you may take this for granted. After all, it's all you've ever known and all the people you hang out with, they're young and in the same position. As you get older, you realize that there are some real advantages to being young. Like energy. I, I could still remember as a dad having kids and realizing they've got a lot more energy than I do. I can still remember my three sons who are baseball players playing a combined, I think it was 10 plus games in one day. I mean, it was crazy. Like two boys had triple headers and the other boy had a quadruple header and it was a tournament. You know, it's hot out, they're playing all day. I just sat in a chair and watched them and I was ready to just retire and go on sabbatical to recover just from watching them. Well, we get home from the games and what do the boys do? They grab a quick snack without even taking their uniforms off. They head out to ride bikes, shoot hoops, and play wiffle ball for more hours until it's dark out. I, I, I literally went in the house and sat in my chair and I fell asleep. I got tired watching them move and I wasn't even moving. That's the kind of thing Solomon is saying is, boy, there is a difference between being young and old and there are some advantages to being young. And what he's saying though is that this time moves very fast when he's saying here that that being young is meaningless. If you go all the way back to the first week of our study together, um, meaningless is a, a word in the original Hebrew that can also mean fleeting or vapor or breath. And the point is that life moves very, very, very fast. It just does. And when you're young, you don't think of it that way. You're sitting in elementary, junior, high school wondering, when am I going to graduate? You're taking classes in college. When will this be over? And then a little while later, 20s, 30s, 40s, decades start flipping by like they were simply days on a calendar. Now, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you sat down and just looked at photos? And I know they're on your phone or your laptop or your tablet or up in the cloud, but you've looked at photos of yourself and the people that you love. Were you surprised at how much everyone had changed? How quickly life had moved forward? I, as I'm sitting here at my desk, uh, at our place in Phoenix. Um, to my left, I've got a photo of Gideon, our youngest, then Alexi, 
and then Calvin, and then above that is a photo of Zach and also of Ashley. These are our five children, and surrounding me are photos everywhere of my kids, because I love my kids, and I love seeing the photos of my kids. And these photos were taken just a few years ago, and the kids don't, they don't look like the same kids. Uh, I'm looking at Calvin's photo. I, I think since this photo was taken a few years ago, he's grown almost a foot. I mean, I'm looking at this photo of Zach a few years ago, and he was, I don't know, at that time, maybe five foot two, five foot three. Today, he's six foot tall plus. I mean, Calvin is a thick kid. He's as large as a grown man, and he's just a few years ago, he looks like a little boy. And, and that's the point that he's saying is that life moves really fast. And sometimes we don't see it because we're in our life, but we start looking at other people and we realize, my golly, they're, they're getting old. Some of you have seen your parents lately. And you're like, they're getting old. You, you've seen old friends. And you're like, boy, they've really aged. You see little kids. They've shot up so fast. See, we look at ourselves in the mirror every day, but we don't look at everyone else every day. And once we see those that we haven't seen in a while, all of a sudden, Ecclesiastes makes sense. Boy, people change and life moves fast and, and it, it's going so quickly. Uh, when you're little, you hear your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents say, oh, they grow up so fast, take photos, you don't want to miss it. And you think, that's such a way old people say that. And then you hit 40 and you're like, that's what I'm saying. I'm echoing my grandparents, I'm echoing my relatives. It does move fast. And here's his point. As a general rule, wisdom is passed generationally, which is that young people and old people, they need each other. I find it sad that in our culture and sometimes even in our church culture, we separate old people from young people. Young people have a lot of energy. Old people have a lot of wisdom. And you put those together, you can actually do something. But by themselves, you either have a lot of energy and no plan, which is like a boat with a sail and no rudder, or you got a bunch of old people who are really wise but don't have the energy to do it, and that's like a boat with a rudder and no sail. And so he's speaking here as an old man, and he's modeling for older people to invest in younger people. And he, he encourages all people, but especially those who are younger, under 40, to take care of their health and to prepare to stand before God. What he's really pressing for here is wellness in all areas, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial. That's what he says. He says, keep your body healthy. It's not uncommon for young people to feel like they wake up every day with a red S on their chest. They proceed to eat bad food, do drugs, drink alcohol, not mend their injuries and ailments. I know a lot of guys that played sports and didn't take care of themselves and they are gimpy and limping. When you don't take care of your body and you're younger, you feel like, ah, it's okay. But as you get older, chronic pain and problems are the result and they set in. So he says, take care of your physical health when you're young. Eat well, be smart, be a good steward of your wellness. And he also says to remember God. He says, remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. The point is, young person, every person, our life is not our own, but rather it's a gift entrusted to us by God. 
and something that we need to give an account for one day when we stand before God. This theme of the fear of the Lord, it dominates the wisdom literature. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, and here at the end of Ecclesiastes, to be wise is to begin with the fear of God. And you say, well, how do I live with a life in fear of God? Well, it's in reverence and respect for God. It's a consideration of God. And then he gives us some golden advice. And I want to unpack this with you. This is a newer revelation for me, something that I taught at a men's retreat not long ago. And it had one of the most profound impacts of any group of people I've ever been honored to teach. I've shared it with people in counseling sessions and in private in recent weeks and months consulting at churches and all kinds of things that God has given me a, an opportunity to do. And I think this insight from Ecclesiastes here, I think it's revolutionary. I think it changes your view of God and it changes your entire life. Here's what he says. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. Okay? Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. That's what that's what Solomon says here. Now, my question to you is, how does that sound? For most of us, it probably sounds scary. It's not the kind of thing that we would tell someone, just go ahead and do whatever you want. So let me unpack this. The will of God is a very curious thing. Sometimes God's will is absolutely, incontrovertibly crystal clear. This is because God has chosen to make it exceedingly and abundantly clear. He tells us exactly what he wants us to do. An example would be God shows him and tells Abraham, pack everything and move. Okay. When Paul's doing ministry in the New Testament, God will say, go here, and he'll go there. It's just crystal clear. And let me say this, there are times in life when God speaks, it is crystal clear, and to disobey is to be in sin. On other occasions, God's will is less clear. We know what God's will is not. Anything that's sin is not God's will. But before us are a couple of different options, right? I, I'm in college, I can get degree A or B. I, I can take job A or B. I can marry person A or B. I can buy house A or B. And sometimes people then say, okay, God, tell me what to do. Give me a clear word, but it doesn't happen. That word never comes. You don't get a word from the Lord. It's quiet on the other end of the line. What you do then is you walk in wisdom. You make the best decision with the information that you can. That's the point of the wisdom literature. How to be a wise person who seeks wise counsel and makes wise decisions as best as you are able according to the knowledge that you have. But what if God doesn't speak? And what if it's not just a couple of options that you can choose between in wisdom, but really, you can kind of pick almost anything you want. Um, for young people that want to marry, this is kind of the case. You're single, so you're a single guy. There's a whole bunch of people you can marry. How do you know which one you're supposed to marry? 
Some people will say, well, I'm waiting for God to tell me. And sometimes he does. Well, sometimes it's just an issue of wisdom. I'm looking for a lady who loves the Lord, that I enjoy, that we share common vision for life, you know, and she'll return my call. Uh, so the list gets narrow pretty fast, but you work through the options. But what about when you just don't know what to do? What do you do then? Here's what I'm going to tell you. The Bible teaches us that God is our Father. And I can tell you, as a dad who's got five kids, there is a very short list of things that my kids can ask me for that they want to have or do, and I will immediately say no to. There's not a lot. These are things that can be foolish, dangerous, or sinful. And honestly, my kids don't really ask for such things. Dad, can we light off bottle rockets in the house? No, you can't. My kids don't ask stuff like that. But there's also another list of a very, 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 very long list of things that my kids could ask me for that they want to do or they want to have. And everything on that list would be yes, 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 yes. So like right now, if my youngest son poked his head in my office and said, Dad, I want to go to the park and play catch. Yes. Uh, Dad, I want to go for a bike ride with you. Yes. Dad, I want to go out to lunch with you. Yes. Dad, I want to go swim in the pool with you. Yes. Dad, I want to go to the store because I want to get a new scooter. Yes. Right. There's this long list, and it's yes. And I said this in a previous podcast, but I tend to be a green light dad, not a red light dad. I tend to be a dad that the answer is yes, unless it's something that's just a bad idea. But if you grew up in a heavy-handed, rule-based, and or legalistic religious home, you grew up in a red light home. In a red light home, no, 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 is what's commonly heard. The result is the kids sneak around trying not to get caught hiding everything from their mom and dad. In a green light home, the kids are more prone to just bring their request to the parents to see if it's a good idea. I believe it's important that you ask yourself, do I see God as a green light dad or a red light dad? If you see God as a red light dad, then the answer is, no, you can't do anything, just sit there until God tells you what to do. So you're just sitting there, God, what do I study in college? Where do I move? Who do I marry? What house do I buy? What job do I take? God, just tell me. And you're sitting there waiting and God doesn't say anything. If your view of God is as a green light dad, then maybe God is not going to tell you what he wants. Maybe God is asking for you to tell him what you want. Have you ever thought of it that way? Think of it like God's a father. And you're sitting there looking at him. Okay, tell me what you want me to do. And God looks at you and says, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? I believe God's will is more of a direction than a tightrope. I believe it's a multi-lane highway. It's not a tightrope over a crocodile pit. It's about going the direction God wants you. And I know a lot of people will disagree with this, but it's probably because they have a red light view of dad and God. And a lot of times this is a father wound that gets imposed on dad. 
that we think that our Heavenly Father is like our earthly father, and maybe he's not. Let me give us some examples. So Solomon says it here, do everything you want, take it all in. Well, that seems like a green light, Dad. How about another one? Mark chapter 10, verse 51, Jesus turns around and looks at a guy and he asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Would you be ready to answer it if Jesus showed up right now, sat next to you and said, what do you want me to do for you? Hmm. Jesus doesn't say, show up to this guy and say, here's what I want you to do. Sometimes Jesus does that with people in the Bible. He shows up and he tells them, here's what I want you to do. But he shows up with this guy and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? Paul teaches us in Philippians 4, 6, right? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be known to God. God's saying, well, what do you want? What's your request? What's your request? What do you want? Here's what Solomon is driving at. Similarly, fear God and do what you want. If you fear God rightly, your desires will be aligned with God's desires. So what God wants you to do and what you want to do, they're going to be the same thing. This is why sin is so evil. Some people think that sin is getting to do what we really want to do and that obedience is doing what we really have to do. I don't believe that. I believe that sin keeps us from doing what we really want to do. I believe that a believer has a new nature with new desires that want to obey and honor and glorify the Lord. And that when we sin, we work against our deepest desires. And I believe if you're a believer, your deepest desires are for godliness and your lesser desires will be to settle for ungodliness. And if you settle for your lesser desires of ungodliness, you will end up miserable. And so the key is to live a very passionate, committed, devoted, excited life, pursuing your deepest desires and bringing them to the Lord and executing on them in the fear of the Lord. And as you do, you'll be doing God's will, which will also be your will. This is how Paul says it in Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh, that would be the sinful dimension of our being, are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. Here's the big idea to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Obedience is doing what you want to do out of the new desires and the new nature that God has given you. Sin is doing what you don't want to do and going back to your old nature and your old desires. So a new Christian with a new nature and a new power with new desires will live by the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way as to fear and honor and glorify God. The result is that we can pursue our deepest desires. We can reject godly, or excuse me, ungodly, lesser, lower temptations and desires. And we can do what we really want to do rather than settling for doing things that are sinful, that God doesn't want us to do. And truth be told, after we've done them, we regret them and we feel bad about them and we didn't find any satisfaction in them. So the result of this kind of thinking is to live the most passionate and free life you can 
fearing God and asking him permission to do what you want. And as long as dad gives you the thumbs up, you become wholeheartedly committed to pursuing whatever it is that's in your heart, marriage relationship, business venture, ministry service, family lifestyle, whatever. That's his point. And I think this is a message that really resonates with young people. It's about here is how to live a passionate life and to do the things that are on your heart to change the world. That's good. And he says, this is important to learn when you're young because it, it affects your whole life in a, in, a, in a positive and helpful way. So then he transitions in chapter 12, talking about young people versus old people and why there are some serious advantages to being young. Chapter 12, verse 1. Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you go, grow old and say, life is not pleasant anymore. Um, if you've ever owned a car, one of the things you realize is the older a car is and the more miles it has, the more frequently it breaks down and the systems are constantly failing. When I was a poor teenager and also a poor young college student and young married, young adult, uh, I could only afford to buy cars that were old with a lot of miles. That was generally pretty much what I drove. And it feels like I spent more time under the hood tinkering on old broken down vehicles than actually driving the car. And I, uh, I somehow was given the gift of buying cars with electrical problems and trucks with electrical problems. And so the starters would always go out and the alternators would go out. So I got pretty good at push starting a vehicle with a clutch. I could push it and then as it was rolling, I could uh, jump in and compression start it by popping the clutch. I had one car that was so not dependable that I would try to park it on a hill so that if I had to jump start it, I wouldn't have to push it. And uh, because of my junky old cars, uh, driveways where I lived would have oil and antifreeze all over them. The point is this, our bodies are like our cars. They need good fuel and regular maintenance, but no matter how well we tend to them, they inevitably start falling apart and breaking down. In fact, if you've spent much time with old people, I don't know when the last time is you spent time with real older folks, a lot of their conversation sounds like war veterans. Aches, pains, medications, surgeries, and the like. They're talking a lot about their deteriorating health and physical energy, and, and they'll say things like, boy, I slept bad last night, my hip hurts. Boy, I got some ringing in my ear. Arthritis has settled into my knee. Oh, my elbow's hurting again. Rain must be coming. It becomes all about the, the, the failing parts and the aging body. Well, Solomon is writing here as an old man who's feeling it. And he's got a rather humorous explanation to young people about some serious disadvantages of growing old. And so he starts getting into the specifics of, hey, if you're a young person, look, be thankful that you can do these things and go pursue a life with God and enjoy your health because it ain't going to be like this forever, kid. That's what he's saying. So think of a grandpa who's wise and had some big highs and some big lows wrote it all down and sat you down so he could tell you, Here, here's some stuff you need to know. Uh, chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Remember him before the light of sun, moon, and stars is dim in your eyes, in your old eyes, and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Uh, like I said earlier, he's saying that 
being young is like living in springtime. Everything's alive, everything's in full color, everything's vibrant, the days are long. Being old is like living in winter. Things are dark and dim and death is foreboding and it's on its way. It's on its way. This is why some people who are old, they're very depressed, they look back and they say, I, I wasted my life. I blew my opportunity, I didn't thread my needle. And I can't go back and be young again. I can't go over and do high school over again. I can't do college over again. I can't do the early years of our marriage over again. I can't go back and reparent my little kids again. I, I, I blew it and I missed it. And here's a guy who's got some regrets and he's looking back and he's telling young people, boy, don't, don't, don't make some of the mistakes that I did. Don't get so busy living your life that you forget about the fear of the Lord. And as a result, you do some foolish things that cause some tremendous harm. He goes on to say, verse 3, Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble. Here's what he's saying. Old people have shaky legs. Old people get the shakes and they start trembling. Have you noticed that? You've been around old people, you're like, man, they shake a lot. As you get older, things get so bad with your shaky legs, you want a one-level house because even going up and down the stairs, a little too risky, a little too scary, can't do that. When you're young, you don't think about that. I, we've got stairs at our house and... The other day, my 10-year-old son, I saw him run up the stairs, like, I think it was two or three stairs at a time, just like a gazelle up a hill. Boom, 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 boom. He's flying up the stairs. At 85, he ain't going to be doing that. He'll be shuffling his feet. And he says, before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Old people hunch over. Have you notice that? They're kind of hunched over. They're not upright. And for you kids that live on your phone, always hunched over looking at the screen all day, this will be doubly true. It says, remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding. Old people have soft teeth and missing teeth. Soft teeth and miss, missing teeth. I mean, it's, ah, it's a hard thing to accept, but it's really true, right? How many of you are old and you're like caramel apples and kettle corn? That's over. That's over. I remember an old guy I saw one time bite into a caramel apple and he pulled it away from his mouth and his teeth were still in the apple. You're missing teeth. You're not going to be chowing down on kettle corn. So what you end up doing is going back to like when you were a baby, just gnawing on soft foods, give them a good gumming. And again, it's kind of sad and it's also kind of humorous because it's an old guy and he's kind of telling the young guys like, hey, Eat your caramel apple, at least you got teeth. And hey, pff, you want my kettle corn? Because I got no use for it, but crunch down, teenager, have a good time. And he goes, before your eyes, the women looking through the windows see dimly. Old people have bad eyesight. He's saying everything seems dark and dim and out of focus like a cloudy day after the sun is set. And I can tell you this is true. I had perfect eyesight, great eyesight, amazing eyesight. I read a ton, I'm a total nerd with a huge library and my eyesight was great until I was in my 40s. And then all of a sudden I'm squinting, I can't see. And especially when stress hits, <clears throat> really bad stress hit, and I, I couldn't even really read for a while. I, I kind of lost my eyesight. How about you? How's your eyesight? I went out and got one of those <clears throat> really big iPhones Kids call it dad's flat screen because at least it's big enough I can see the thing. 
And here's what's crazy. When I was 19, let me grab it. It's right next to me. It's one of my most valued treasured possessions. When I was 19, I got saved reading a Bible that Grace gave me when I was 17. <clears throat> and this is the Bible that I studied as a new Christian. I've marked up all the margins. Um, it's a great old Bible. I've since had to recover it because I wore the first one out. One of my favorite books in here is Ecclesiastes. I've studied and taught it a lot of different times over the years in different contexts. And so over the years, what I would do, I'm kind of thumbing through my Bible here for you. Um, kind of the first time I went through it, I wrote things I was thinking and underlined things in black ink. And then the next time I went through, I used red ink. And then the next time I went through, I used blue ink. So Ecclesiastes has just got arrows and notes and circles and highlights and underlines and notes in the margins and all kinds of information. And I use different colors over the years just to kind of demarcate the things that I was learning at various ages and life stages in my walk with Jesus. And so I thought, well, it'd be fun since I'm sitting here doing this little chit chat for you from my house. Um, and it's kind of personal in our time together. And I appreciate that. I thought, well, it'd be good to pull out that old Bible and maybe pull a few notes out of this section. And here's the sad, hard, cold truth. I can't read it. The font is so dang small. I'm literally having to like move it back and forth from my eyes. And when I go to read my notes that I hand wrote in the margin, these were things that I would use when I would teach. And I can't even imagine that I would look down at my Bible and glance and catch my hand scratch notes in the margin because today I can't even read them. I have to keep moving it back and forth and I'll have to probably grab my eyeglasses if I want to read it all. And I had to get glasses because my sight was going and the eye doctor said, quote, this is what happens to men at your age. I had not had a lot of your age conversations, but now I'm starting to have those your age conversations. Well, when a car gets this many miles, this is where it starts to leak oil. I guess I'm there. And that's what Solomon is saying, saying, man, at some point your, your, your eyesight starts to go. Are you there? He goes on, remember him before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. When you're young, you've got a lot of opportunities, but when you're old, those doors start to close. That's why in an economic downturn, older workers struggle to make ends meet. And when a person's, get, person's given their whole life to a career and that career dries up or that job goes away, they're left in a difficult place trying to reinvent themselves professionally by starting over. It's tough. When you're young, you think, oh, I can do anything. I'll try that job. If it doesn't work out, I'll quit it and go find another one. When you're middle aged, you're thinking, I got bills to pay and family to raise. I got to be careful. When you're old, you're like, my golly, if I lose this job, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. I, I, I don't have the ability to go out and change all my skill set and reinvent myself. And there are opportunities that come when you're young that you just don't get that kind of opportunity again. These can be vocational and ministry opportunities in particular. He goes on to say, chapter 12, verse 4, Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. He says young people tend to sleep well. I, I could still remember in college, I had a, I don't know, some bunk suspended from the ceiling with some mattress. I, I didn't even buy a new mattress. The mattress, I mean, it was horrible. I mean, just this horrific college mattress that some guy had left, you know, in the bunk that is hanging from the ceiling by chains, literally. It had been there since probably Nixon was in office. 
there's no, you know, what do they call it, uh, box spring underneath. This, this is a bed that is basically sort of a Kevorkian special, and I, I slept great in it, man. I slept totally fine, never a problem. Lights that come on in the morning with a roommate, no problem. Sun coming in through the windows, no problem. You know, 10 dudes in the house in college just making enough noise to be, you know, a Metallica concert in a phone booth, no problem. Gonna sleep, not a problem. When you get older, things change. Your sleep is easily disturbed by any noise. Oh, I'm up all night. You get up a lot to go to the bathroom, and in the morning, the, the, the first ray of daylight wakes you up, and a little bit of noise, oh, I'm up for the day. So here's what happens. Old people get up really early and they have nowhere to go and nothing to do. That's what he's saying. It's got so bad for me. We recently bought a new bed. And uh, so we had to go out looking at beds. I've never focused so much on a bed in my life. I'm 45. When I was young, I was like, oh, whatever, bed of nails, bed of down, bed of cotton. It's all the same. I'll sleep just fine. Now it's totally different. My wife and I were going to the mattress store recently. We're just sitting there like total goofballs, like sitting on the bed, laying on the bed, laying on our side on the bed, laying on our back on the bed. Got to test drive the bed, try the bed. Um, because, you know, a bed is an important thing. And if you don't get a good night's sleep, you wake up all sore. I've had sleep-related injuries for no reason. A bed is such a simple thing. It doesn't even come with an instruction manual. But somehow people make beds that if you sleep on them, you wake up injured. I don't even understand those beds. That's why when you get old, I'll just tell you this, you don't even like going on vacation because what if you get a bad bed, then your whole vacation's ruined because you didn't even get a good night's sleep and you woke up achy and sore, especially in your hips and your joints. Well, we were looking at beds and then you got to figure out, okay, do we get a regular coil spring bed? Do we get one of those, you know, uh, Tempur-Pedic type of beds? And we looked at the Tempur-Pedic type of beds with the memory foam and they said, oh, this bed could last for... 40 years and I looked at the person I said I don't know if I'm gonna last for 40 years it's pretty crazy I might have just bought my last bed this might be the bed I die in I'm not real good at math I'm 45 but if the bed lasts four years well 40 years that's 85 that means that that the bed might make it longer than me and, and that's what he's saying, that all of a sudden, when you're old, a lot of your energy and focus gets rotated around a good night's sleep. A good night's sleep. It goes on, verse 5, Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worrying about danger in the streets. Young men don't really worry about their safety. And as a result, sometimes they do foolish and dangerous and reckless things. When you're a young guy, it's, I don't know, I got testosterone and hair on my knuckles and I'll take care of myself. Conversely, that kid's grandparents, they can feel somewhat unsafe. All of a sudden you're like, I'm gonna pay a guy to get on a ladder, I'm not doing that. Or um, going out becomes, well, becomes a little scary. Because after all, what if, what if there's people out there that are dangerous? If you're old, you can't outrun them. You can't outfight them. You're vulnerable. All of a sudden, you're, you're feeling frail. You're feeling mortal. You're feeling vulnerable. That's what happens for old people, especially old people who live alone, like widows. When you're young, you can go anywhere. Young people want to travel. 
Young people feel invincible. I'm going to go see the whole world. I'm going to go out at night with my friends. I'm going to go downtown. We're going to go out and have a good time. He says, well, do that while you're young, because when you're old, you're probably not going to want to do that. He goes on to say, before your hair turns white like an almond tree in blossom, when you're young, you have a lot of hair. When I was young, I had a lot of hair. And I didn't always fashion it the way that I should have. In the 80s, the soccer rocket, the mullet, the achy breaky bad mistakey, um, th those were popular. So I didn't always do to my hair what I should have done to my hair. You know, um, sometimes the haircuts were hmm, not ones you'd want to have today unless you were taking tickets at a carnival. But anyways, as you grow old, your hair starts to become an issue. You start to lose the hair on your head and the hair you do have, it gets thinner and it gets whiter. It just does. Like right now, um, my hair is thinner on top in part because of stress, but also just getting old and it's whiter. So if I grow out a full beard, it looks like Kenny Rogers and Santa had a kid named Pastor Mark. And you know, it's kind of funny, but it's not funny if you're that guy. Because as a guy, you're like, I don't understand what's going on with my hair. I, I can braid my feet, I can braid my knuckles, I can braid my back, and I can't braid my hair on my head. And how many of you have got a dad or a grandpa? He's got so much hair coming out of his nose, it looks like he snorted a cat. But at the end of the day, the dude can't grow any hair on his head. And if he does, it's all crazy white and thin. And it looks like he got electrocuted and he's sort of not that smart. And, and, and that's the whole weird thing with your hair. How many of you have seen those commercials for guys and their hair? Here's how to get more hair. Here's how to get your hair back. Here's how to thicken and strengthen your hair. Here's how to dye your hair. Hair becomes a real big issue, especially for, at least as far as I can tell, us guys. So he's telling young people, if you got a lot of hair, enjoy it. Don't cut it all short. Just let it blow in the wind because someday it's going to all be gone. And he goes on to say, and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper and the caperberry no longer inspires sexual desire. Um, have you seen a dog that's a puppy? A puppy will play fetch all day, tail wagon, tongue dragon. Go, 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 go. As a dog gets older, they nap a lot. They just lay down a lot. And you can't even get them up with a treat. They're like, eh, maybe later. Dog owners are the same way. Human beings are the same way. As you age, your energy simply plummets. I can still remember when Grace and I were engaged to be married and I was working a job on the docks in downtown Seattle. I think it was like a double shift. So this was a long time ago, but I was in my early 20s. So I'd work like five to one in the morning and then one in the morning till nine in the morning. So I worked back to back eight hour shifts every day. Every day, no problem. Um, had energy for that. I couldn't imagine today working from five at night till nine in the morning every day for months on end. And there were some days somebody would call in sick to the day shift and I'm trying to stack up as much money as I can because I love Grace and I want to marry her and we're flat broke going back into college. And uh, they'd be like, hey, could you take this shift? Sure, I will. So what I'd do, i work, you know, I would work a full, um, 24 hour shift, no problem. I would sometimes then uh, take a nap in my truck and come back for a 16 hour shift, whatever it took to get the job done. 
had to stack up the money because I wanted to marry the most glorious girl in the world and I needed to have money to do that. Today, I, I think I got better chances of flying with Peter Pan than doing that. The energy level is just not the same. And he says this includes sexual desire goes down as you get older, which is why there's a growing medical gold rush to return energy to aging people in and out of the bedroom. And I don't know about you, uh, the commercials are getting, whoever's in charge of the commercials, hey, uh, could you dial it down a little bit? It's a little weird sitting around with the family and those things pop up on the TV. Uh, in addition, he goes on to say, remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when mourners will weep at your funeral. I've met tens of thousands of young people. I don't know a one that has a file on their laptop or in their home that delineates exactly what they want at their funeral. I, I haven't seen that. I have met with a lot of older people who have a life insurance policy, a will, and a funeral plan complete with a casket and a service order. My father-in-law, he died in his 80s a few years ago, and he was a pastor, Gracie's dad, and had the honor of preaching his funeral. And before he died, he literally showed me, here's my file. Here's what I want the service order to be and the songs that are sung, and here's how I want my funeral to go. And I had the honor of preaching his funeral and honoring his wishes. The day of death is coming for you. And when we're young, that day seems so far away, we don't even pay attention to it. But as we get older, that day gets closer and all of a sudden it starts to come into our gaze and then it becomes an object of our focus. He's telling the old people, man, I'm, he's telling the, the young people rather, this old man is, you kids are planning your life. I'm planning my death. You guys are buying your first home. I'm buying my last casket. He says, yes, verse six, chapter 12. Remember your creator now while you are young, before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well, for then the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Sin and death has entered the world. And he's saying at some point our body breaks and we die. This can include a broken spine, calls it the silver cord of life, a crushed skull, he calls it the golden bowl, heart problems, he calls it the water jar, and failing veins and arteries, he calls them the springs and the pulleys in our body. In time, we all die. And you know, it's interesting. Our first father, Adam, God formed him from the dust of the earth, and we're all going back there. And our body goes into the ground, and our spirit goes to be in God's presence for our eternal fate. Soren Kierkegaard, the old philosopher, used to say, you define life forward and live it backward. Walker Piercy said that living in the moment is like threading a needle. And he closes with this, chapter 12, verse 8. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. I told you day one as we ventured into Ecclesiastes how you define and determine that word is incredibly important. The book starts with that word. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. I'm working from memory, but like 
38 or 39 times, depending upon your English translation, the book uses this word. Hevel Hevel says the teacher, everything is, well, what is it? I don't think that life is meaningless. I think that it can be, but I don't, don't think that it has to be. I think that concept of vapor, how that word is used in Psalms and other places makes more sense. He's saying everything is a vapor, says the teacher. Everything is a vapor, completely a vapor. What it means is that life moves so quickly. Here in Phoenix, we recently had a crisp, cool morning, and I have lived here four months, and we love it. And today it's 75 degrees out, and I've got the top off my Jeep, and I know exactly what I'm doing when I'm done chatting with you. I'm going for a drive. He said, light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to see the sun. I agree with that. I'm going to go enjoy it. But we had a morning not long ago. It was a cold, crisp morning. Hadn't felt crispness like that here the entire time that we've lived here for some months now went outside and it was an amazing thing because it would happen all the time up in the northwest where we used to live. You would take a breath and it was so cold you could see your breath and there it was for a moment and then it was gone. The other morning I walked outside and it was cold enough here in Phoenix. I, I breathed out and just for a moment I could see my breath and then it was gone forever. And I believe that life is just like that. It's a vapor. It's fleeting. It goes so quickly, so fast. I, I can't believe that I've been with Grace for 26 years. I can't believe that our oldest daughter has graduated from high school. I can't believe that my firstborn son that I held in my arms is now six feet tall and I look up to him. I can't believe that when we were moving, there was a heavy box that I went to grab and my my 13-year-old son, who's about as big as I am, said, uh, Dad, I'll grab that. I don't want you to hurt your back. I'm like, what? When did I get to the point when my little boy that I used to spoon feed in his high chair and he would say, num, num, is thinking about saving my back because his strong back can just go grab that box and snatch it up with no problem. It all moves so fast. So what do you do? Live. Live your life. That's what Jesus did. He talked about death and he prepared for death, but he spent his days living his life. He preached, he taught, he loved, he served, he cast out demons, he told the truth. He built his friendships, he wept at funerals, that he lived his life. Jesus squeezed a full life into a short 33 years. And he died on the cross to forgive our sins and he rose to give us the promise of eternal life. And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we know that yes, life is born and it's springtime and we grow up and it's summertime and we grow older and it's fall. And then we are old and it's winter and we go into the ground and we die and it all becomes dark and then we rise to be with Jesus forever and it's spring forever and the kingdom of God is portrayed and depicted as, as a spring, a spring season where the sun never sets because it's the glory of God that illuminates all of creation. 
We don't even need the sun, Revelation says, because Jesus' glory shines forth. The picture of God's kingdom is rivers flowing and, 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 and fruit that is ripe on the vine and life and joy and peace and an eternal spring. And so let me close with this. And I didn't even intend to share this. Maybe it's from the Lord. You can ask that question for yourself. I, I remember I was a young man, maybe 20, 21 years of age. I was working as a bellhop and shuttle driver and concierge at a Marriott hotel. And I could still remember the day I was sitting down in the break room and I was reading a book by a man named G.K. Chesterton. And he said that God is young and not old. Hmm. And he said that we grow old because we sin and because God never sinned. God does not grow old. So our picture of God as an old man in the sky is actually very inaccurate. God is not old. God is eternal. God is, not to overstretch the analogy off the top of my head, but he's young, he's youthful, he's vibrant, he's alive. He's a springtime God, not a winter God. God is not a tired old man. God is a strong young man. And I want to be very careful to not say that God is a mere man. I'm using what the theologians will call anthropomorphic language. But when we think of God, we need to think of God as strong, as young, as alive, as vibrant, as joy-filled, as hopeful. And we need to hear that when we're young, God wants us to live our entire life and to continue to live our entire life. And as we grow old, to help those who are young to live their entire life in the fear of the Lord. You're gonna die. So live your life. That's old Grandpa Solomon's sage advice, and it's great. You've got a green light, Dad and one life to live. My question to you would be, what are you gonna ask him for? What do you wanna do? Thanks.